Good morning. How's everybody today? Good, good, good. Um, well, hey, I uh, uh, glad to be here with you guys. Welcome. If this is your first time, um, just happy that you're here. It's good to be together this morning. And um, I want to do a quick intro. My name is Corey Bradley. If you've never, uh, um, if I've never had the chance of, of meeting you, I'm nobody special. You don't have to have the chance of meeting me. But I would love the. Uh, um, would love the opportunity to, to meet you, to shake your hand, to get to know your name, uh, if we haven't had that chance yet. So let's, um, let's do that after service, and I'll, I'll do my best to, to come up and say hey if we haven't met yet. But um, we call, um, I call Regen home uh, with my wife, Jess, and our two daughters, Harlow and Peyton. And um, so today is um, the continuation of a series on Joseph and um, the, the story of Joseph's life. And um, we'll be looking at two chapters today, Genesis 38 and chapter uh, 39. If you'd like to turn there, cool. If you have a Bible, great. If not, no worries. I will, uh, I'll read the, the, the scripture as we go along. But um, last week, uh, Dick talked about just how messed up Joseph's family was. And um, specifically, he mentioned that it kind of caught my attention, like specifically how things were going to get worse before they got better. So, um, you know, as with if everything in the Bible, like there's good news in here, right? There's good news in, in chapter 38 and 39. Um, but I want to preface today with this. If you've never read Genesis 38, it's pretty gross. Um, it's gross and violent and abusive and pretty horrible um, all, all over in general. Um, so it's easily ignored or misunderstood. So we're going to spend like probably half or maybe even like three quarters of our time in Genesis 38 today, unpacking that. Um, but it's full of sexual violence and abuse, and we'll further see the dysfunction of Joseph's family, uh, that kind of like, the, and the fallout, really, that ensues from that. But um, I want to say this, too, like, and, and Dick mentioned this last week, and I just, I kind of wanted to continue this train of thought into this week, but um, we think sometimes the Bible is a, is a book of moral people, that live these like unattainable um, stand-up lives. And somehow, you know, we will call them heroes of faith because they're so good and so moral and so righteous and so true. And, and Genesis 38, and really look, the entire Bible, if you really know it and read it, um, proves that this is not the case. Um, we'll quickly, I mean, in the first 10 seconds, you know, we'll read Genesis 38 and see like, okay, well, you know, there's no moral compass to be found anywhere uh, in this chapter. So um, I want to say those things before we, we kick off, and we have a lot of ground to cover today, so forgive me, like I'm just going to jump right into it, right? Usually I like to open with a cool story about my life, and uh, that's just not going to be the case today. We're going to jump right into 38 and 39, and uh, I'm going to let my Bible nerd out, I guess, a little bit, and we'll cover like verse, and then we'll talk, and verse, and then we'll talk, so hang with me. But um, last week we learned that uh, Judah was the fourth oldest son of Jacob, and that he was actually the brother uh, in this group of massive, you know, brothers that convinced, uh, decided and convinced his other brothers um, to sell Joseph into slavery. Um, what a tough, tough time and tough life for Joseph. But it's easy to look at Judah in this case as an evil man, right? Like sold his brother into slavery, human trafficking. That's pretty evil. Um, and really he was at this point in time in his life. But the more I learn, the more I read about Judah, like I'd like to kind of lean into the fact that he was also a very broken man. Right? He was a very broken man, um, a man that's been wounded deeply by his father uh, and by his family of origin. And he's walking through life just with this gaping hole where the love and instruction and guidance of a father ought to be. 
It's just not there. So he does evil things, right? He does evil things, and we're not going to excuse any of those things, right? I'm not trying to say, hey, let's have a little, you know, like let's let Judah off. No, he's, he's terrible. Um, but that brokenness inside of him is coming from somewhere, okay? It's coming from this deep place of family sin and trauma. So chapter 38 picks up uh, by telling us that Judah has left his homeland and uh, married a Canaanite woman. We'll also learn that Judah had three sons, all with just weird names. Um, and we find him searching for a wife for his oldest son to heir. And forgive me if I butcher these pronunciations. Um, uh, it's going to be what it's going to be. So, uh, so we'll, we'll pick up in Genesis 38, verse 6. Uh, and again, look, it's uh, just, again, warning here. I'll give you a few warnings throughout this chapter, but it's going to get real serious um, and real weird real fast here. Okay, so just hang in. Genesis 38, verse 6 and 7. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Verse 7. Now Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. All right, well, I mean, it's coming in hot. I told you guys the story was coming in hot. Welcome to church. The Lord's just killing people. Um, but look, you may be tempted to read this and go like, wow, that, that escalated quickly, right? Like, why is God uh, so quick to do something so final? But if you remember and trust that God is a good judge and a just judge, and we know that his character is true and right, the better question here is like, how evil of a person was error that God had to take such a final judgment and make such a final action? Sometimes we're quick to put the thumb on God and go, aha, see, I knew it. I knew there was this one thing that was like weird and I just, I got him, I, you know, right? Could it be that God is taking the exact right measure at the exact right time when nobody else cares to see what's happening here? Nobody else cares to see or be involved in what's going on. And this is not the point of this chapter. I just read that verse and I go, wow, that's pretty extreme, right? So verse eight, then Judah said to Onan, and Onan was the middle son, uh, Er's younger brother, one of Er's younger brothers. Um, Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife, perform your duty as her brother-in-law and produce offspring for your brother. All right, well, it's getting a lot weirder um, if you couldn't tell. But this is referring to this ancient practice called Leverite marriage. Um, it was a specific cultural thing in this place and time, and uh, not really just a cultural thing, but it, it became part of both this ancient uh, Near Eastern and biblical laws. It wasn't a law at this point in time, but became, you know, later on. You can find this one specifically in Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10, if you get excited about reading, like, biblical law. Uh, for some reason, you could go there. Um, but here's the deal. Uh, Onan is the younger brother of Er, and they live, like, probably on the same property or, like, in the same house. Um, and because Er died without a son, he was the oldest, remember? He died without a son. It was Onan's duty as his younger brother to marry Tamar and help her bear a son. Weird, right? But that's how it is. And just for, and really, it's not just for her future and security and protection. She's a woman in ancient, you know, Near Eastern culture. We'll talk a little bit more about that. So it would have been for her protection and her, you know, securing her future, but also to honor his brother who died and leave him the heir that he couldn't secure while he was alive. So that's a lot. But good men in this time would have considered this an honor. All right, this, this very weird to us and something, you know, we never want to take part of. But good men in this time would have considered this an honor. Let's look at Onan's response. Verses 9 and 10. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. Verse 10. What he did was evil in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Can't say I didn't give you guys a warning. Okay, like... This is in the Bible, okay? Didn't, didn't, yeah, right? Like, it's not. So, Er is dead, 
Onan is dead. What's up with this story? This is wild. Like, the Lord's just killing these evil brothers. Judah went off, right? Joseph's still in slavery. We'll talk a little bit about him later, but we don't know specifically why Er died, other than he was just evil. We know that Onan was put to death because God considered his sin enough to be like a capital offense. Like, that's how egregious this was in the, the eyes of the Lord. Onan was content enough to have this continued sexual relationship with Tamar. He was content enough to be with her for pleasure, but not for any other reason. He married her, but then abused her sexually. That's what's happening here, just so we're clear. He did this because he did not want a child. It's pretty clear that when his brother Er died, his share of the inheritance, Onan's share, increased. If he produced a child with Tamar, it wasn't going to be his child specifically, right? Therefore, his part of the inheritance would decrease as that child would get Er's portion of the inheritance. It's a lot happening here, right? But just it goes to show you, like, there's another level to Onan's evilness, right? He doesn't care about anybody else but himself, doesn't want to care for the child, doesn't, doesn't want to bring a child, doesn't care for Tamar. So Onan's happy to have sex with Tamar while also denying her the dignity of motherhood, while at the same time having an eye on his father's estate this whole time. So Judah's a dad in this situation, right? Think about it if you're a dad. How would you respond, right, as your sons are, are being killed off. He doesn't know this, by the way. He doesn't know what's happening other than his sons are just dying. Verse 11 says this, Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, funny he goes right to her, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. That's the third son, the youngest. For he thought he might die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. This seems like a pretty basic kind of statement, right? But we need to unpack this. For him to say this in their current culture, and time is essentially a death sentence for Tamar. She's not free to remarry because she's betrothed to Shelah, right? Even though Judah's not going to follow through on that, we know that. Um, she's also a woman in ancient Near Eastern culture. We kind of mentioned this a bit earlier, but she's not permitted to have a life outside of being a mom and like bearing sons. Um, now, the Bible doesn't condone this, all right? Just so we're all on the same page. The Bible doesn't condone this, but she can't have land. She can't own a business. Like, she can't participate in any form of, like, something that would allow her to take care or provide for herself. If you're a woman at this point in time in history and culture, like, your ultimate goal, your ultimate value is, like, bearing sons, right? Carrying on that family name, producing an heir for the family. And while she's under her father's roof, she's still really not part of her father's family anymore. She's part of Judah's family, and she's Judah's responsibility. She's a widow, and Judah's responsible for caring for her. But Judah quickly sends her away. He doesn't want that responsibility. His sons are dead. His life is kind of descending, and he's kind of like, I don't, that's not my problem, right? Even though it is. So at first glance, the, it's like, okay, I mean, yeah, he's irresponsible, being kind of a crappy father. But when you really know, like, what's happening underneath this, like, you can see how immature and wicked his response actually is. He looks at Tamar and thinks of her, like, superstitiously, as if, like, somehow she's the one causing all the problems happening in the family. If she's, like, bad luck or something, right? Like, if you sleep with her, your life's gonna, that's just not, you can't, there's something wrong with Tamar here. Like, I can't, she, she just has to get out of here. He looks at a young woman and uses his powers as, or uses his words, excuse me, uses his words as a father, as a leader, as a man. And he uses them to neatly stack all of his brokenness right on top of her shoulders. Instead of looking in the mirror at himself and owning his baggage and his responsibility. So look, 
first five minutes is first five minutes of Genesis 38. We see sexual abuse, the power dynamics of men over women, absent fatherhood, generational sin and dysfunction, and the list goes on and on and on. Mentioned at the beginning, like it's gonna get worse before it gets better. So enough time passes, and we're gonna continue on with this story, but enough time passes that Tamar realizes this, okay? Well, um, it's pretty clear that Shelah is not going to come and marry me. Um, it's been enough time, like, she realizes that Judah has lied and has essentially abandoned her. You can't remember that death sentence, right, that, that, that she's really living here. But Tamar does something pretty amazing. She decides to take action. She hears that Judah will be traveling up to a place called Timnah to have his lot of sheep sheared. I know we can all relate to this, right? Like when you go to have your sheep sheared, it's just a good, like, you're like, man, I couldn't, just can't wait for that to happen. <laughs> and this was usually a time of like partying or celebration. So you can relate to this because it's called payday. <laughs> so Judah was like, payday, cool. And his wife had actually passed away at this point in time. So he was going to up to Timnah to have his sheep sheared. He was like ready to like party, celebration, awesome payday. Um, and, uh, and Tamar knew this. So... Tamar secretly makes her way to uh, this place called Inane. It's on the way to Timnah. And she kind of plots, or like, like plunks herself right down at the entrance of Inane. And uh, she plots out a plan to try and right the wrongs that Judah and her sons have committed against her and the family unit along the way. So she arrives in Inane and she wears this veiled disguise. Okay, so a widow in that time would be wearing a really specific outfit. So she takes that outfit off. She puts a veiled disguise on. Obviously, nobody would recognize her because, you know, she's not wearing her, her widowed or widow outfit or widow's outfit, excuse me. But in addition to this, it sort of marks her as a prostitute. She's kind of playing a part here is what she's doing. Uh, might have easily considered to be or, or taken her for a shrine prostitute. Doesn't necessarily matter. Either way, like she makes this plan to play on Judah's obvious vices, foreign women, power, sex, and no commitment, right? He's, he lost his wife. He's going up to, like, have a good time, get payday. How smart is she? She's sitting at the entrance dressed like a prostitute. She knows who he is. So Judah inadvertently runs into her in verse 16, and here's what happens. Verse 16, he went over to her and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Story's getting a lot worse, if you can't tell where this is headed. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? Verse 17, I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. Let's stop and just celebrate how smart Tamar is right here for a second. She's a smart woman. She knows who Judah is from previous experience. Like, she knows that he's lying. He's not going to send anything to her. Think about the relationship that she's had with him so far. He said, go, go back to your father and, or your father's house, right? I'll send my son to you. If he doesn't have, like, the guts or the responsibility to follow through on that promise to his daughter-in-law, why would he ever send a goat or anything valuable to a prostitute he's never going to meet or see again? So she's smart. Verse 18, he goes, what should I give you? He asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her. Stupid. That's not in scripture, but I just, every time, like, man, you're just. So he gave them to her and slept with her. And she got pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil, put her widow's clothes back on. What a mess. What a mess. Judah inadvertently sleeps with his daughter-in-law. She becomes pregnant from all this, like, chain of 
brokenness and violence and abuse that's happened already through the first half of Genesis 38. A couple things are happening here. The biggest one is that Tamar now has a child growing in her belly. Although things are just, I mean, things are still wickedly horrible for her, right? She doesn't have a husband. This is a good thing. This is a good thing. But even more than this, she has something of even greater value in this current moment. Judah's personal possessions. How is there not a Netflix special on this? I just don't understand. Like, his ring, cord, and staff. Now, these would be similar to your wallet, your phone, your identification today. Judah left all of his personal belongings with a prostitute. She now not only has her future secured with this baby, she has his whole identity and reputation in her hands. She has an insurance policy. How quick-witted and smart is Tamar in this male-dominated society where, again, she can't have a job, can't fend for herself, she's not allowed to do any of this stuff, where she's essentially a nobody. She puts together this surgical action plan to try to right these wrongs, and in a swift moment, she flips the power dynamic, right, from living out a death sentence to essentially now she has all the cards and all the power in her hands. She's the only one brave enough, the only one cunning enough to fight for the family unit in spite of Judah's best efforts to just tear everything down. Her courage and cunning actions are impressive, but there's still more to the story. Judah hears through the grapevine that Tamar is pregnant, and he calls her to judgment right away. So he finds out, right? I mean, you can't, you only had a baby for so long. So she, uh, he calls her to judgment right away. No questions, no sit-down meetings, no trying to hear her side of the story. So she's technically still betrothed to Shelah, the youngest, right? That's still enacted, even though it's not going to happen. But now that she's pregnant, it's clear to Judah that she slept with another man. She's, in her, in his eyes, excuse me, she's become an, an adulterer. Now, there's no perceived recourse for adultery today. But the local law or custom then stated that an adulterer was to be stoned to death. That's, I mean, pretty extreme. But look at Judah's response. He says, what he says here is more, says more about his character, I think, than anything else we've read so far. Verse 25, bring her out, Judah said. Let her be burned to death. Well, the local law or custom was already, I mean, in my, my mind, that's pretty strong, right? Like, I'm um, going to stone this woman to death because she slept with another man. But Judah would like to do his best to torture her and have her feel as much possible pain as she possibly can before she dies. He wants to punish Tamar. And not just Tamar, but also the baby that she's carrying. Don't forget she's pregnant. He's asking for her to suffer as much as possible before she dies. Can you say double standard much? Judah can sleep with whoever he wants to sleep with, whenever he wants to sleep with them. Some prostitute, a shrine prostitute on the way to get his sheep sheared, right? He doesn't care. It doesn't matter. But as soon as he finds out about Tamar's pregnancy, let's put her to death. You know what? Let's not even stone her. Let's burn her alive. How evil is this man at this point in time? Judah seems to be doing everything he can within his power. Seems like a man in control, but I see a man in the dark just grasping, like trying to hold it and bring it all in and hold it together trying to keep control of the situation. His reputation is on the line. And finally, he gets to the point where all of his problems can just be burned away. Surely he, he, excuse me, surely he must have some sense of relief. Finally, stop dealing with this woman. Finally, I don't have to hear her name. Finally, I don't have to talk to my son, Shelah, about this weird thing that's kind of happening, right? 
Finally, he'll be able to walk away and never see her or hear her name again. Finally, that nagging feeling of responsibility is just ashes. Except Tamar is not done yet. She also responds in verse 25. As he was, as she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I'm pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Well, well, well. <laughs> All I can say right here is mic drop, checkmate, touchdown. <laughs> Tamar cashes in her insurance policy, but there's so much more happening right here when we really look at this. God is also using Tamar to speak to Judah in this moment. We see something very interesting happening in the Hebrew language when she uses the words examine them. The word in Hebrew is hakernah. Super fun word to say. So hakernah, and it's the same exact word that Judah uttered when he showed Joseph's bloody coat to his father Jacob back in chapter 37. Examine them. Now there's no way Tamar would have known that this is what he said, right? She, she doesn't know like what transpired. She didn't even meet Judah until chapter 38. But God is allowing her to speak even more powerfully than she even knows. God is backing her. God's, God's taking Tamar's back here, right? God's allowing, um, excuse me, he's backing her and, and using her plan for good. So Judah hears this and he doesn't just see his current mess with Tamar. He, I mean, he sees it. He knows what he did, right? But this, this is so much bigger and so much deeper and so much wider at this point for Judah. He sees the flashback to selling Joseph. He hears his cries coming from the cistern. He sees the look on his father's face when he hands him the bloody coat. In a moment now where he's caught red-handed, he feels the entire weight of the man he's been and the man he's become, and he does something amazing. He repents on the spot. Verse 26, Judah recognized them, the items, and said, she is more right than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her intimately again. This is an amazing moment of turning, of Judah's life turning around for the, the good. He was still, right, in power. He could have denied it. He could have said, nah, burner, that's not my stuff. Get out, right? But he heard from God in this moment, and he turned around. Judah's confronted with all of his failure and all of his sin and all of his brokenness. Tamar takes it off her shoulders and puts it right back in front of his face. And to our surprise, he repents. But still, while the story's finally getting better, right, we're finally climbing a little bit out of this mess of the story of Judah and Tamar, it's still not over. After all the abuse and dysfunction and heartache and anxiety and pain, Tamar surprisingly gives birth to twins and names those twins Perez and Zerah. It's almost as if God is paying her back double for the abuse that she's seen and experienced from her two previous husbands. We could end it here, though. Great, right? Judah repented. He's going to have they take responsibility, take care of Tamar. She's got two babies now, like two sons. She's living her life, doing her thing that she was born to do in this culture and time. We could end it here, but God is not done yet. And all of this, there's still the largest part of this story to tell. So if you want to, real quick, turn with me to Matthew 1. You don't have to. This is the genealogy of Jesus. This is uh, an amazing start right, to a book in the Bible, Matthew. Uh, but if we're all honest, this is the part that we skip over because there's a lot of weird names and, you know, I'm just going to leave it there and it'll be what it'll be. But stick with me for the first three verses. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, 
2. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Go all the way down to verse 16. It says this. Joseph, the husband of Mary who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is, gene this is Jesus' genealogy, and Tamar is not the only woman in this genealogy, but she's the very first woman listed. This is mind-blowing alone that, like, a woman in this point in time and culture and place would be listed in a genealogy. A man wrote this, by the way, right? So, like, we're assuming, like, Matthew, right? He's a man. So, a man wrote this, like, Tamar's listed in this. That's mind-blowing within itself. But think about the whole situation we just read. Think about all the brokenness, all the abuse, all the violence, all the fallout from Joseph's family and Joseph's situation and Judah's situation, the father wound just gaping, right? Now think Jesus, the Messiah, Savior of the world, choosing to come from this family line because he could have done it however way he wanted to do it, right? But he chose to be part of and come from this family line. Have you ever heard about this man called the King of Judah or the Lion of Judah? Think about what you just learned about Judah and now think that Jesus is playing a part in all this. He's choosing to be in all of this. In a story about a young and abused and ignored woman in a hopeless situation where she does things, look, she would, if she had any other choice, right? She had no other choice. This, she's trying to stay alive. She's fighting for survival here. Would do it any other way if she could help it. We see Jesus in the midst of all this violence, all this abuse. We see him stand up and say, I'll be part of that. I can use that. We can make that work. I'll redeem that. There's hope here. In Tamar, we have a brave young woman who risked her life for family fidelity and refused to give up. We see God with his eye and hand on Tamar when nobody else seemed to care or notice her. We see God use her to eventually play a part in ushering in the very life of Jesus Christ. That's Tamar. We see God using the dysfunction and abuse and sin and violence and selfishness to turn Judah's life around, preparing him for something pretty cool, by the way. Stay tuned. No father wound, no bad decision would keep God from intervening in his life. That's Judah. But the series is about Joseph. We haven't even really talked about him this whole time, right? What's going on in Joseph's life? What's happening in his life? We last heard in chapter 37 that Joseph was sold by the Midianites to Potiphar in Egypt. Joseph descends even further from the pit into slavery. He's taken to Egypt. Both brothers are descending in this life. Judah leaves his homeland on purpose, Joseph by force. We quickly see in chapter 39, though, something pretty awesome. The Lord was with Joseph. It says this over and over and over again in chapter 39. Because of the Lord, Joseph rose from the pit from slavery to become the guy in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. Scripture says that Potiphar literally only worried about what he was going to eat every day. He trusted Joseph with the rest. So Judah has three sons, and Joseph becomes the right-hand man, in a sense, of Potiphar. Both of their lives seem to be trending upward, right? Things are going okay. Joseph's still a slave, right? He's no longer in the pit, but he's still a slave. But in the most favorable position you probably could be if you're a slave. But just as things seem to be going well, adversity once again finds both brothers. Judah's sons start dying one by one. Joseph has to contend with Potiphar's promiscuous housewife. 
not going to read through all of this today for the sake of time. We're covering two chapters, remember? But Potiphar has this promiscuous housewife. We don't know her by name. She pesters Joseph for just day after day after day. Please, just sleep with me. You're a handsome dude. Everybody's always talking about how cool your comb-over looks. Like, it just... I added that part. It's not in there. Um, but Joseph, like, says no, and he flees. A little bit different of a response from Judah, I would say. He wants to honor Potiphar, but more than anything, like, he doesn't want to sin against God. Joseph's main concern, right, he's in prison, he was sold in slavery, like, he's not had a great or easy life at this point, but his main concern at this point in his life is not getting ahead, or finding a way out of his situation, or escaping to find pleasure, or even, like, he doesn't really no concern for his own well-being, I would say. His main concern is that his actions and words in life are honoring to God, wherever he's at, wherever he's sitting, whatever pit he finds himself in. But it's, it seems that regardless of how morally upright Joseph's life is, like adversity just keeps finding him over and over and over and over again. And no matter how many times chapter 39 reminds us that God was with Joseph, like his life just wasn't clear or free from adversity. Joseph makes a decision that all of us want to make, but maybe one that few of us would when he flees from Potiphar's wife and finds himself again in the middle of being abused and victimized. His possessions are used to commit an injustice against him. Once again, but this time it's not his family. It's when Potiphar's wife holds his garment in her hands, telling that lie. Look at this Hebrew slave. He came in to take advantage of me, right? Judah's main concern is doing anything and everything he can to calm the storm in his life. Just taking a quick look at these two brothers. Judah's trying to do everything he can to just get back into control, to not like have his reputation just completely destroyed and ruined. He tries desperately to save face. Tries to just maintain, get back to feeling good, get back to feeling normal. He sleeps with whoever he wants to sleep with, whenever he wants to sleep with him. His thoughts and actions and words are not really concerned with what God might be doing or thinking, but with the next good or pleasurable thing that might come his way. His possessions, compared to Joseph's, his possessions are used to call him to justice when Tamar reveals who the guy actually is that impregnated her. So adversity continues to find both brothers. Brothers, excuse me. Potiphar has no choice at this point, right? even though his wife is lying. Potiphar has no choice but to throw Joseph in jail. Into the pit we go again. But because the Lord was with Joseph again, we see that he still has favor. He has favor in the eyes of Potiphar because he makes, uh, Potiphar makes a specific effort to put Joseph in the king's prison. Right? It's like the prison of prisons. Like they have Xbox, I think, in that prison, you know, that you can play. It's a VIP prison of sorts, right? Because Potiphar could have been, you're done, right? You're out, but he didn't. So Joseph's in prison, Judah's being exposed. These brothers are taking completely different approaches in life. We know how Judah's story ends, in a sense. Let's look at how chapter 39 finishes after Joseph is sent to prison. We'll look at uh, chapter 39, Genesis 39, 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. He granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Uh, the warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority, and he was responsible for everything that was done there. The warden did not bother with anything under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and the Lord made everything that he did successful. Joseph experiences once again that the Lord is with him wherever he's at. The Lord raised him up over and over and over again. 
So Joseph, I, I think, is beginning to realize that whether he has a garment or not, whether he's being abused or not, whether he can prove his innocence or not, whether he's in charge of everything or nothing, God is with him, and God is ultimately in control. In control of his life, in control of history in itself. And the whole point of this is not that Joseph was up and down and up and down and up and down. It makes for a really cool story, right? Like, or the point is not that like Joseph was so much morally better than Judah, although that's true. It's a matter that where, no matter where Joseph found himself, the Lord was still with him. The Lord was going with him up and down and up and down. What if for Joseph, life was not about how much money he could make or how successful he could be or how impressive his life and work and family looked on paper? What if for Joseph, life was about being with the Lord? What if our lives, or like life itself for us, is about the same thing? Like not necessarily about where we go or what we do or even how afraid or successful we feel. What if it's about letting the Lord be with us and about us being with the Lord? Sounds so simple. It sounds pointless to some, right? Say it maybe in a different way. What if it's about acknowledging that the Lord is actually in control of everything? I'm not trying to give you a cheesy Christian phrase. The Lord works in mysterious ways, man. You just never know, right? It's not a cop-out for bad things that are happening in our lives. What if it's up to us to be with him wherever we're at? See, Joseph is actually still the smallest portion in his own story. The process he goes through, this exaltation this humiliation and this exaltation again is a signpost for a few things. This is my favorite part of the sermon coming up, just FYI. It shows us his individual life and provides foreshadowing of like where God is taking him, right? Joseph's obviously going to be a leader of some sort. I don't want to spoil the story, but like he goes to prison, he's a leader. He's sold into slavery, he becomes a leader. Like something's happening here, right? So there's foreshadowing happening. But this is also the process that the, 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 the scripture, or excuse me, this chapter is telling us about this process that the people of God are about to go through, right? They don't know it, but we know in the book of Exodus, right? As a nation, when they deal with Egypt, and Egypt enslaves them, but then again when God delivers them from Pharaoh. Exaltation, humiliation, exaltation. And it finally shows us the largest and most ultimate picture again of Jesus. How he started in exaltation, came to earth to die in humiliation, and then ultimately was raised up again to reign and rule over everything to be exalted. Joseph's life portrays a type of Christ. Ultimately, it shows us that God is in control and can use it all. Every single broken thing. Every single bad experience, God can use it all. And the whole point of Judah and Tamar and Joseph is not to say, hey, just be like Joseph and your life's going to be great. That's not true. Look at his life. Just look at, just be like Joseph. You'll be fine, right? Probably not. You might end up in prison. I don't know. Joseph's life was extremely difficult. The point here is that regardless of your moral compass, regardless of where you're coming from or where you currently find yourself, God wants to be with you. He doesn't have to be. He's making a choice. Like God wants to be in your life, in my life, in our lives. And not only does he want to be with you, he's ultimately wanting to redeem all these broken pieces of life to turn them around and do something really, really good with you, with me, with us. Our action in all of this is, is not easy, i got to be honest, but it's to trust and remain faithful to God regardless Sounds like a really easy thing to just say in church. Just trust God, right? It's going to be fine. It's very easy to just say, go trust God 
when you're in a pit or when you're in prison or when you lose your job or when your health is declining or when you have a sudden loss and you don't know where to go or what to do. But to trust God means to give up part of it, means to give up our perceived notion that we have control over anything that happens in life. We can influence. There's things we can do, sure. And I'm not just saying to, to give up and what will be, will be, right? That's not what I'm saying. Tamar clearly didn't have that, right? Like She's like, let's go get it. We're going to make something happen. But in your actions and plans and thoughts, ultimately knowing that God will use it and guide us through it. Martin Luther has this awesome quote. He said this similar thought like this, like, I have held many things in my hands and lost them all, but whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. But how do we, like, physically do this? What action step can we take how do we trust God regardless? Well, I think we start by asking better questions. I want to show you this chart. Um, it's a brief chart. Um, there's a lot of words on it. I'm going to explain it real quick, but there's three sections in this chart. The managed life, the wounded life in the middle, and the forming life at the very, very bottom. Just take note that the forming life is at the bottom, right? <laughs> the place we don't want to be. But we'll start with the managed life. This is the life that Judah was trying so hard to find at every turn until he repented. He was trying so hard to find the managed life, a life where things look good and feel good and things like seem smooth and like I don't have any like friction at all. This is the life that a lot of us are seeking and that's okay, but like this is the life that we want. We just want the good life, man. Like just don't bug me with problems or responsibilities. The managed life is concerned with this question, how do I look and feel good? And like the chart mentions, like, I think this chart mentions it. It doesn't. I'm sorry, I have a different chart. It's the same notes. Um, so like, like the, the, my chart mentions, like, this is the natural movement. Like, this is like the default. We all move up, like, regardless. Like, so we're all going up all the time unless we intentionally make a decision to be formed in life. And we'll get to that one in a second. When things go upside down, we almost instantly strive to put our emotions and our work ethic, like, just into overdrive, right? And that, that's okay. Like, we have that for a reason. That could be a good thing. You see examples of that in Tamar. But we're doing it so that we might get back to feeling like we're on top of life or where we feel like we're supposed to be. Or maybe some of us, we feel like we deserve to be, right? Like, I've worked all my life. or I've done all these things. Like, I deserve to be here where things look and feel good. We move to the, mi the middle, the, the wounded life. I would argue that this is actually the life that Judah was living in reality. I don't know if he knew it or not, but this is the life I think he was living. He left home, but he brought all the baggage with him, all the baggage from his horrible father wound and the dysfunction of his family, and just, we saw him make one bad decision after another. Human nature, I think, would tell us that um, he's most likely searching for peace or love or satisfaction uh, or even trying to escape from the pain that he's feeling. The wounded life is concerned with this question, well, how... <laughs> Life sucks, right? I'm wounded. How do I get back to feeling and looking good? Too often, and I'm so guilty of this, I ask that question over and over again. My prayers somehow, I think, are on repeat of, God, I just want to be better. I just want to get better. I just want to feel healthy. And those are okay, and there's a place for all those, right? We'll talk about that in the forming life in a second. But this is life when things are upside down. How do we react when pain or suffering or adversity comes our way. And then we finally have the forming life at the very, very bottom. This is a life that Joseph was living. Adversity seems to stalk him at every corner of his life. Just when he's here, something comes in, life just comes in and tries to bury him again. 
But instead of responding in rage or hurt or finding ways to escape or lay blame on others, Joseph is concerned with, it seems like one thing, like, what is God thinking? What is God doing? The forming life is concerned with this question, what is God doing through this and in me? Like the chart mentions again, yeah, bad notes, the chart doesn't mention it, mine does. Um, this is essentially a learned way of thinking about life, right? The default is as human beings, we all move up like, how do I just feel and look good? How do I get back to feeling and looking good, right? The forming life, being formed through the things that happen, allowing God to do his good work in us, happens when we stop and we sit. This does not sound fun. When we sit in the pain, instead of trying to escape from the pain and hurt and adversity in life, when we sit and we ask the question, okay, God, what are you doing through this pain? And what are you doing in me? This is how we are intentionally formed more to be like him and less like our default that wants to move up the chart. Living or sitting in pain cannot be done without a loving community, though, to sit with you, to grieve with you, to encourage you. So, last couple things. Here's what I'd like to invite you to think about this morning, all of us, myself included. Where do we fall on this chart? When adversity arrives or life comes to throw you in the pit, what questions are bouncing around in your mind? Does it sound something like, why is this happening? God, can't you just let me get back to normal? Can't I just be healthy for once? Can't I just, and those are all, that's like probably called praying the Psalms, right? There's a part for that. There's a place in that. But at some point, at some point, do we stop looking up at this like, hey, life could be good, life should be good, and, and we stop and we sit in our pain and we go, okay, God, what do you, what's happening? What are you doing? What do you want to tell me? Who are you forming me into at this point in my life? So be honest, maybe where do you fall on the chart? What happens when adversity comes to throw you in the pit? But I also want to leave you with one challenge. As you consider stepping down into the forming life and asking these questions, you can't do it alone. If you look around the room this morning, you'll see people that are imperfect and yet perfectly dedicated to asking God that question at every turn in their life. So I want to challenge you to find somebody, find a group of people that you can start living life with. People that will sit with you through pain, that will grieve with you through loss, that will pray with you and encourage you. So maybe you're sitting here this morning just feeling deeply wounded and you're in pain or maybe you're already on this path of you're like, yeah, I'm there, man. Uh, and it's not great sometimes, right? I'm trying to be formed by Jesus and I'm trying to pay attention to my pain and I'm trying to understand how I feel and know how I feel and I'm not trying to escape it or ignore it. I have to remind you, every one of us, that God is sometimes exactly where we don't expect him or want him to be. In our pain, in our suffering, in the middle of a broken and shattered family, in the loss of a job, the loss of a family member or a friend, the loss of your health, Friends, no matter where you're from, where you're going, where, like, what your family is, if your family is like Judah's family, like Joseph's family, a broken mess, or some mix thereof, or you feel like, I had a pretty good family, regardless of that, God wants to be with you. He wants to be with you. God wants to begin this process of redeeming broken, thing, broken things in your life. He wants to do something really beautiful in you and in the world around you. We start to hear this. We start to see it when we begin this process of regularly stopping and asking, God, what are you doing through this pain, through this situation, through this suffering, this thing? What are you doing in my life? And I pray with you this morning.
Father, thank you that you are you are here. Thank you that you are stronger than any force, stronger than any addiction, any disease, any brokenness that we feel. Stronger than our sadness, deeper than our sin. I thank you that out of all the choices you could make, you still choose every day to be with us and you want to be with us. Pray this week as we go, help us to pay attention to you so that we can make a conscious and intentional effort to see that you're here and to choose to be with you regardless of the pain and the darkness maybe that we feel. In Jesus' name, amen.